The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio in the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we say hi to Jeff Daniels. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing, guys? <laughs> okay. Uh, let me just go through a couple of your credits before we get uh, get into chatting. Uh, Broadway appearances include Lanford Wilson's Redwood Curtain and Fifth of July, for which you won the Drama Desk Award several years ago back in the early 80s, uh, Best Supporting Actor in a, uh, in a Play. Off-Broadway credits, Drama Desk nomination for Lemon Sky, Obie for your performance in the Circle Rep Company's production of Johnny Got His Gun. In addition, you are the founder and executive director of the acclaimed Purple Rose Theater Company in Chelsea, Michigan, where you grew up. Uh, some movie work, two Academy Award-nominated films, Good Night and Good Luck, and The Squid and the Whale. Welcome to Downstage Center. You're currently appearing here in New York at the Manhattan Theater Club in a show called Blackbird. For our audience, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the show, what it's about. It's a two-character show, you and Alison Pill. Pretty much, yeah. We we It's written by a Scottish playwright named David Harrower, and it won the Olivier Award Actually, he won, he was on the airplane uh, uh, flying over from, from England over to uh, um, New York on our first day of rehearsal. And we got word that it had won the Olivier Award, which is a big deal in England, apparently. So um, uh, I, I, right away, Blackbird was this wonderful kind of, you know, had this spotlight on us <clears throat> initially. Joe Mantello directs it. It's basically a one-room, two-character play about a relationship that happened 15 years ago between uh, Ray, this this guy I play, and this uh, girl named Una. Uh, Una's 27 years old now, and 15 years ago that meant she was 12. So the play starts with her basically appearing at his place of business where he has a new name, a new life, and she's found him and wants to talk about what happened. That's how the play starts. And it, it's it been wonderful to do because it starts the intensity that we have to walk on stage with at 8 o'clock every night is the, similar to the intensity you find at the climax of most other, other plays. That's where we start. And our whole intention, which Joe Mantello has, has really driven us to do, and successfully, I'm happy to say, we grab the audience by the throat at 8 o'clock and we let go of them 90 minutes later. And we've had people watching the show saying we can't breathe, we can't, you know, we're afraid to move. We're, I mean, it's painful to watch as these two people, these tragic lives kind of bounce off each other as they try to work their way through something terrible that happened years ago. And your character, Ray, is just an average guy who's finally established himself in a good job. He's not a not a big shot, but he's like a middle level manager at this anonymous company. We we it's it's we don't quite know what Ray does. Uh, it's, it's, and, it's, and that's part of the fun of the play. It's something in pharmaceuticals. That's all we learn. <laughs> that's all we learn. <laughs> and yeah. he's now in his mid fifties. Mm-hmm. So at the time he was about forty and she was twelve when they had this relationship, shall we say, mm-hmm. for only three months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's it's just, again it's 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 uh, really painful. Uh, it's a pleasure to play. I mean, actors would kill for this part, and uh, they can kill themselves after I'm done doing it. Uh, but I, I, it's it was, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. 
not only emotionally do you have to bring it every night because there is no way to fake this. Sometimes you can get on stage in an eight times a week run month after month after month. And I call it mule on the trail acting. Well, I'll do this. And then at this point, I'll do that. And then I'll do that. And the audience will pretty much get what it is. But there's really no emotional investment by me. I can fake it. And a lot of people do that, but you cannot do that with this play. In previews, we tried. We literally tried to do that, and it just, you have to live it. And emotionally, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do uh, on stage. And um, just the way that David wrote it, the memorization, it's very Mammoth-esque. And it's very, it was very, very difficult to learn. And uh, so, thus the, the difficulty. When you talk about the difficulty, very often actors get asked, you know, how did they develop an intimacy with the people they're performing with? How did they develop a relationship? And you've got the interesting situation of the intimacy is 15 years earlier, and you are playing the awkwardness of being reunited with someone you never expected to or ho probably hoped to see again. Well, it's just uh, for anyone listening, it's that thing where you see someone, anyone, regardless of your relationship with them, you see them 15 years later, and they're different. Yet, they're the same person. And, you know, factor in the fact that these two people had this illegal relationship, as they say. Um, yeah, there is a history there, a, a very convoluted, complex history, as they try to work through this, this, this encounter, um, you know, 15 years later. I'll tell you this, working with Alison Pill, from day one, it was obvious that there was no way we could do this without trusting each other, uh, physically, so that nobody gets hurt, emotionally, you know, I mean, just lines, I mean, you just, there's no safety net, it's just the two of us, and um, she's been an absolute pleasure in that regard. We really get along great, and... It's essential, I think, to really kind of get along because there's so much pain <laughs> for 90 minutes. It's it's great to kind of, you know, uh, kind of jump off the cliff together at 8 o'clock and then find something to laugh about 90 minutes later. I want to be very careful not to let on too much of the revelations of the play, but I think it's safe to say that there are many things that still go unspoken and unexplained over the course of the 90 minutes. When we've spoken with some of the people involved in the play Doubt, they talked about the fact that Brian O'Byrne and John Shanley privately between them decided what the truth was, even though it's not revealed in the script. Was that a process that you and Joe Mantello and Alison Pill went through in terms of fleshing out for yourselves some of the things that aren't fully explained in David Harrower's script? Well, there's there's fully explained... Uh, yes, there's the back hist the backstory for me and what happens after the play comes down. That's entirely up to me and in my head. Joe Mantello uh, basically said, "I don't need to know. I don't even." I, and I haven't. I haven't told Joe. I know. I certainly have uh, uh, an understanding of what Ray is doing when he walks out that door. And, uh, but it re really was kind of a. Um, you know, I think the other thing, too, also, I must say, is that is that is when David Harrow was here the first week of rehearsal, he said something. He goes and I'm going, well, when I do this, when I talk to her about this letter I wrote, he goes, well, yeah, if there was a letter. I'm, go I'm sorry. 
And he goes, if you actually are telling the truth there, yes. And as I said to David, I said, name three things in this play where I'm telling the truth. And he laughed and he said, he said, the point was, when are you Ray? And when your new identity, Peter, when are you Peter? When is Peter pulling Ray back? When it, there's a struggle with Una, Alison Pill's character, but there's also a struggle inside Ray with his new life, the old life, when to reveal too much, when to spin it in a way that makes him look good 15 years later. You know, you know, it's, it's all over David's script. Adults lie. I don't know what to believe, Ray. You're not telling the truth. You know, I mean, it's just it's all and to the point that it's confusing to him as well. And I think that's part of the why people leave Blackbird talking about it days later. And I ask some of this about the, the the backstory or even the forward story, because in the English production, there was actually a wordless scene that apparently is not in the script no. uh, that that tells you a little more. Was was that something that Joe simply didn't want to do that? That David Harrower said, that's not really my play. Uh, David said, that's not really my play. Uh, I think the director took some liberties to, you know go operatic with it shall we say without telling what happens because it does kind of reveal something uh, it, it was it was a director uh edition and uh no the playwright was not terribly happy with that so uh, i was very happy with the what he did when he americanized blackbird for what we were doing and that it ended the way it did i was very happy with that now you said a few minutes ago that this was a very difficult uh, role to learn, to learn the words, to learn exactly as, as David Harrower wrote them. Why, why, why is that? It's just I had never done Mammoth, and Bill Macy is a friend of mine, and he said, you know, it's, it's, it's a music. It's a, there's a rhythm to it. It's not as difficult as you think. Well, you know, okay. But, but Bill also said, Joe Mantello told us this, he goes, there will come a point, because it's written so choppily and so awkwardly, and and as people speak sometimes, the stutters are written in that you will come to a point in rehearsal where you want to quit the business, that you can't act, this was all a sham, and this needs to end now, and I should quit. And yes, wait, I had that dress rehearsal. I, 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 I found myself there. David has written a play that, I mean, there are lines like, um, you know, I was with one of the, our managers, we're in the middle of something. They, so I might, I could get called away. I'll be sent for, I'm still needed. Mm-hmm. That's all one line. And so as you're learning it, you've got to, it's each thought has to be unique and singular. And yet you can't homogenize it all because that he wants it stilted. He wants it awkward and and that was one thing we did. We slicked it up. There was a preview where Allison and I just, man, we had it all blending. It really just was just beautiful to listen to, but unaffecting. It really wasn't that uh, the audience kind of just sat and watched us. And so we really went back to kind of breaking rules. This isn't a slick Broadway rat-a-tat-tat boom interpretation of a script we're chopping it up the play stops at times for no apparent reason other than that these two people are tired of talking and that's kind of wonderful to do it struck me that you barely complete sentences for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the show that it's all partial sentences it's quite remarkable yeah because we're so on guard uh the two of us i mean it's just mind-blowing what what 
the situation, the given circumstances as she as she arrives. I mean, it's 15 seconds ago. This woman is in my reception area and I'm bringing her down the hallway and putting her in this conference room and the lights go up. And I mean, it's just the tension. Um, it's the kind of tension, too, that you the stress that that I've got to kind of, you know, build up. That's another thing that's been weird. Usually. You go on stage and you're doing everything you can. You're doing relaxation exercises. You're stretching. You're doing all this stuff. So you're you're vocally. You're just completely at ease. No, it's the opposite. Ray has to be just short of a heart attack. You have to be out there ready to, to start fighting instantly, basically. Well, physically, I've found the secret is that I really have to, and it takes about 15 minutes prior to going on, uh, is that I have to recreate that fear, terror, tension, what is she going to do? Is she wired? Am I going back to prison? What does she want? Why is she here? How did she find me? Questions, 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 lights up. So how, how do you do that backstage? Is it something physical you it's do? A, it's a, you play with your mind. It, it really is make-believe for adults. You really have to lose the day. Um, you have to get in his head. And and it's the secret I have. It's it's what I do when I act. It isn't. I have to think like he does. And when I think like he does, when I'm thinking what he's thinking, yes, you're aware of lines, you're aware of staging, but that really needs to be as 10% of what is in your conscious mind. And the other 90%, you know, percentages, give or take, really has to be that internal monologue of what does she want? Why is she here? Why is she wearing that line? What is she? Oh, she moved over. I mean, just there's a whole play going on inside my head. And when you do that, everything else takes care of itself. Does it help that you and Allison are are, uh, are, are friendly to one another or do you need to build up some sort of a, a barrier between you two? Uh, it could work either way. It's just life's too short, you know, to to not enjoy the people you're working with. I just can't stand those people. I've been in movie sets with them and... I just have no use for them. And so I I really, and she's a great girl. She's very smart, very smart. Scares me how smart she is and funny. And uh, I, I just enjoy being out there with her. And she's such a pro at such a young age. Um, she has saved me numerous times out there. I'm happy to say because she's I'm in good hands with her. And, and I think vice versa. I think she feels the same way. So and that's important. You want to you want to spend time with people that, uh, you know, when you're working that that you like, it's just easier. Now, the show is 90 minutes. It's two of you in a conference room, a rather nondescript conference room, a table, a couple chairs. And that's about it. How do you find so much physical activity? Because you're not just sitting still, you're, you're moving around quite a bit. Well, that's uh, Joe Mantello really helped, I mean, obviously with the staging and the movie. And he always had us moving for reasons. There isn't uh, any kind of crossover, you know, the Broadway cross or the standard kind of go over here because it looks pretty, you know, visually. We, we Joe doesn't work that way. It was always for a reason. It was always motivated. And I, I, I really... Um, you can blend that sometimes, you know, as an actor, you can find you don't necessarily go right at the top of the line. You move halfway through the line or you bounce because of the way she looked at you tonight. You bounce it off. You bounce the move a little bit later. And that keeps it alive. That keeps it electric. That keeps it first time. It's the first time it's happening, which is the other battle that theater actors have to do, which I'm 
happy to say thus far, Blackbird, Allison and I really keep it alive every night. We really listen to each other and we react. If something, and I, I do something different every night, whether it's a cadence or an inflection, and she's the same way, and we just, we, it's, it's got to happen for the first time on stage every night to the degree that we can make that happen. Well, we're talking all about stage technique, and for a lot of people who are only familiar with you from your film work, they don't realize the extensive stage career that you've had, even though this is your first acting appearance anywhere in 14 years on stage? Uh, certainly in New York. That would be yes. So, yeah. But let's go back, because you really were got to be involved in one of the fabled off-Broadway companies, the Circle Repertory Company, back in the in the mid to late 70s when you got involved there. Can you talk about what well, we should we should ask you to tell a little bit about Circle Rep and then how you got involved there? Circle Repertory Company, um, I think 69 they were formed, Marshall Mason, Tanya Barras, and Rob Thurkill, Lanford Wilson, I think were the four founders. And they just wanted to do new American work. That was their mission. And they had Hotel Baltimore, I think, was one of their, and they had many kind of, you know, wonderful productions and were uh, heralded for many. But Hotel Baltimore, Lanford's play, really kind of put them on the map early. 73, I think, something like that. And I was in Michigan and in college, and very long story short, Marshall Mason, the artistic director of Circle, had done Hoddell. He came out to a college in Michigan, Eastern Michigan University, to, to direct some college kids, I think, just for a check. He knew the head of the department whom he had gone to college with. The guy said, look, Hoddell, Baltimore director, come on out. I'll pay you some money, you know, and direct some college kids, go back to New York. And he did. I was one of the college kids. I got the part in the lead in Summer and Smoke. It was like a four-play rep thing. And also they did Hot L. They did a couple other plays. And you were in every play, big part, small part. But had the lead in his Summer and Smoke and played Judd Hirsch's role, Bill, in uh, Hot L, which Marshall also directed. And I was uh, going to ask him before he left, should I try New York? I was really good, but young and raw and, you know, and he, before we had our first show at the college, he took me out to a bar, which was, okay, yeah, all right, and went out, and he sat down, and before I could ask him, he looked at me and he said, you know what you should do with your life, don't you? And I said, well, <clears throat> I think maybe I should try. And he goes, no, 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 you need to quit school. Though you can go to school, that's up to you. Finish your senior year, up to you. But I'd leave college now, come to Circle Rep, become an apprentice. Um, no promises, but I think you should come. Huge break. Huge. Because I was this 20, 21-year-old kid. If I'd have moved to New York by myself, I, I New York blew me away. I was a small town right out of a cornfield kid. I'd have lasted three months. Gone back to Michigan and worked at my dad's lumber company. I couldn't have taken it. But because of Marshall and then Lanford... And because of Circle Rep, who said, you have a home here, stay here. Give it a year. I did. And it literally gave you a home. You lived with Marshall for a little while, didn't I, you? Yeah, I was in his guest room in his Greenwich Village apartment for two weeks before I got my apartment up on 23rd and 7th. And um, I, But they gave me a, a home, and then it became my creative home. 
And then I just learned so much working on 5th of July with Lanford. And just everything was about new American work. They never seemingly did published work or it was only way down the road that when I was there that they did uh, Shakespeare, uh, Bill Hurt and, you know, they got him to do Hamlet or something. And but it was always about new play. It was always always about living, breathing playwrights walking around the offices of Circle Rep with a second act under their arm, needing some actors to hear it. That was thrilling to me. I always thought playwrights were dead. You know, you go to college and you go and you see these published plays and they're either dead or you've, you've never heard of them or you just, there's no connection out there. At least there wasn't for me. And so to see these writers, and I think that's where I fell in love with writing and playwriting, is to see these guys slaving over a, a second act or having trying to come up with an idea, you know, all, I just, that thrilled me. And that's what Circle was known for. That's what they did as well as anyone. But you're talking, I mean, obviously Circle was a playwright's theater. You talk about Lanford, certainly mm-hmm. John Bishop. There were other people who were considered Circle rep playwrights. But you're coming directly out of an undergraduate school. Were you even majoring in theater at the time? No, I was minoring because I didn't want to read all that Greek theater. So you come out (laughs) into Circle Rep into what was also an extraordinary company of actors. In passing, you've quickly mentioned already William Hurt, but but talk about some of the other people because this had to have been part of your training as well. Well, it really educated me on on, um, the ensemble feel you know i mean yeah we had there was judd hirsch and there was chris reeve god bless him there was uh bill hurt uh there were uh, who else i mean i mean i was there for mm, three four five six years um other people came through uh, but there were also i really look at that hot l cast chatty farrell uh john hogan danton stone uh nancy snyder you know those people burke pearson that they just kind of were the characters they were they were they had playwrights writing roles for them tailoring them uh the roles for them as if they were tailoring a suit and i i I loved that and they could really kind of live in the character it wasn't some actor coming through this wasn't a job this was a character that was created specifically for them um that's what i loved most about circle rap you know the People that went on, you know, great. It happens for some. It doesn't happen for others. You know, a lot of it is luck and timing and all the things we know. But uh, it really was when we did it right, when Circle, when the play was there, and Fifth of July is a great example, it was tailored for the people on stage. And that's when Circle, I think, was at its peak. Well, speaking of Fifth of July, then, since you bring that up, uh, the original production, who was in that then when it transferred to Broadway? Did those same people transfer? No, uh, most did. Um, I, Bill Hurt originated it off-Broadway, spring of 78. Um, everyone killed it, critically, except for Rex Reed, who was writing for the Daily News. Rex Reed was the, on the New York Times, Richard Eater, I believe, kind of, you know, dismissed it. And, you know, now it's just an, another off-Broadway play part of their season. And, and you know, they they banked a lot on Lanford, but wasn't working. They sandwiched board outside the, the, the Sheridan Square Circle Rep Theater. Rex's review. You know, got to see this play. And that's what, that's, we ran from week to week on that sandwich board. 
from spring all the way through into September, I believe, week to week. Are we going to be open? Are we going? To, yeah, we're, we've got enough money. We can keep the play going. So then, and Bill left uh, after about six weeks, and a guy named Tim Shelton came in. And then a year later, then now they're going to do it in rep with Tally's Folly. They're going to do it at the Mark Taper Forum. And so, you know, all of us original people go out there. There's a uh, couple L.A. people in it. Uh, but then there's Danny Stone and me and Joyce Reeling and John Hogan and Amy Wright and, um, you know, Helen Stenborg. Uh, those are us originals went out. But then in a year after that, now we're going to go to Broadway. Oh, we are? Yeah. I mean, it's just endless. And uh, Bill was doing a movie, I guess, and Chris Reeve was Superman now. And so Chris wanted very much to do it, got the part, and we all went to Broadway uh, with Chris. And it was 1980. 1980, yeah. Yeah. So it was a kind of a – there was like an eight-month gap in between each of those productions. But that play did me a lot of good. I loved doing it. It really – the the part of Jed is all about listening – and and that's what Marshall taught, reaction, listening. That's the secret to acting. What you do with it once you hear it is a whole other thing. But uh, Jed was about listening. And, um, you know, I loved being able to stand on a Broadway stage and listen like that and have, I mean, literally Jed would be on the porch. Lanford would say this. There'd be this party in the living room. Uh, and they're doing coke, and they're doing drinking, and they're this and that. And Jed's not terribly happy about that whole scene, and what's going on, and what's being proposed. And I'm on the porch, like looking out at the moonlight or something. And there's a certain point in something that John Hogan's character says, and Lanford said, "All you would do is just turn your head because you heard it, and the entire Broadway house would look at you." As to why that was important, and it's just. You know, it, it was it was a great kind of uh, lesson and kind of beginning of how to work in close-ups in film. I mean, I was we were doing that off Broadway. You know, we're we're working in close-up already, and that's the other thing. When I started doing films, everybody talks about the transition. Oh, well, you got to bring it down. Less is more. We were already less is more a circle, and that's the beauty of off Broadway of Blackbird now, of, of Circle Rep then, is that we really, um, we make you lean in towards us. And where the bigger houses on Broadway, of course, you got to shoot it out more. There was no transition for me to film. It was just like stepping in front of a camera off the Circle Rep stage. And while clearly it would seem the success of 5th of July started to bring you film attention, you were back at Circle Rep only about a year after the Broadway run of 5th of July doing a one-man play, Johnny Got His Gun. When you talk about attention and focus and all, being alone on stage has has got to be the epitome of doing that kind of work. It really was uh, as hard as... Blackbird is. Uh, Johnny was was second, the second artist, simply because it was me for 90 minutes. I mean, when they proposed it to me that a guy named Bradley Smith was adapting the the book by Dalton Trumbo into a one-man show, and the the Trumbo family allowed it to happen, and Ellie Renfield directed it, and we did a reading of it because Marshall and company weren't quite sure. One-man shows are kind of, you know, death. And the reading was just I mean, it was so powerful the material and I barely got through it emotionally and then we went ahead and did it 
and um, you know once you have it you know uh, it's you you can kind of get on that train and you go through that you know it's it's doable um, but it really well I went back there and uh, we did it in August and uh, for three weeks uh, standing ovations and um, and the critics came and and uh, the New York Times came and I'll never forget it I was standing there and I you know, I knew they were there. So, with about twenty other critics in this hundred and sixty seat house, and I, I, I did the show, really nailed it. You know, focused. Got there, curtain call, standing ovation, go off, made him wait tonight, made him wait, made him wait, came back out again. Okay. It wasn't like bouncing back right on, you know, love me, love me. It was, and, uh, you know, the critics were applauding and all that. And the review was, Johnny Got His Gun Does Not Engage Our Emotions. So it was three weeks and we were done. Praised, o- praised your performance. One and Obi. Yeah, but I, I it just... It was a strange review because it praised your performance whatever, but said it didn't you work. Know, but I, I just, I, I, it's, I, I don't know. I, you know, and obviously I'm too was too close to it and immersed in it and all of that. But I, uh, whatever. But that that killed it. I mean, that that really killed it. And mm-hmm. um, you know, you, hey, listen, the New York Times, you uh, and all the critics, you love them when they love you, and and um, um, they're not writing for me. They're writing for the people coming to see it. So I get it. But I wish that play had, had run longer than it did. You mentioned before dead playwrights and in fact when we look at your theater resume there's not a lot of dead playwrights on it but you were in quite the star-studded production of three sisters at manhattan theater (laughs) club i mean an amazing list of people christine Ebersole, diane wiest bob balaman sam waterston jack guilford yeah um quite an interesting mix so what what was that like in relation to all of this new work that you had done before and, and really since? Well, Lynn Meadows directed it, and we, you know, we we tried. I mean, we, you know, you, you swing and miss sometimes, and uh, um, it it just didn't come together for whatever reasons. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, also, too, when the burden of doing a new play means that possibly the reaction by critics and audience might be probably needs work. But when you do something like Three Sisters, it's been around forever, uh, they can compare it to other productions. So we certainly, probably with all with that cast, had a lot of, you know, this better be great or, you know, there's no other great or bust. And, uh, you know, we weren't great. There was a guy named Jerome. I don't know his last name. I played Andre in it. And Jerome was my assistant. Jerome was uh we did this in 1982 i think and jerome was 92 years old the actor jerome and jerome and then i looked up the play and the and and chekhov had written the play in 1900 jerome was older than the play (laughs) jerome had trouble remembering what jerome was supposed to do uh sometimes he came on sometimes he didn't Sometimes he brought the book he was supposed to bring. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes Jerome came on, and Jerome had glasses much like Woody Allen's, the black-framed Woody Allen glasses. One one night, Jerome came on wearing the glasses, just forgot to take them off. 
One time, third act, Andre has to come on stage sobbing. Thank you, Chekhov. That's easy to do. Standing in the wings. All right, let's work it up and then come on, you know, completely distraught. Right before I'm supposed to walk on, Jerome flatulence. Jerome, uh, let's just say the sound of a truck backfiring. <laughs> and now I walk on. That's, that, when I think of Three Sisters at the Manhattan Theater Club, that's what I think of. That's your fondest memory. My scenes with Jerome. <laughs> What's going to happen tonight? Yeah. Well, so, in a certain way, it was always a new play then, wasn't it? Always a new play. <laughs> yes, it was if Chekhov was alive, coming back to haunt me or something. There's always an adventure every performance. So how, as an actor then, how do you deal with that? You obviously, you have to react in some way. Uh, you know, you do that, that, that. The show must go on. The scene must go on. You get through it. Um, you 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 uh, ask ask Jerome's character where's the book, <laughs> and he literally walks off stage, and then comes back on with the book. I mean, at, at some point you don't. I mean, you can't ad lib Chekhov. You know, it's like Shakespeare. You can't just start making the because there are people that have it memorized sitting in the audience. So you got to be careful about winging it. You know. So, but yeah, it's you just find a way to get through it. The continuing theme in your work is the relationship to Lanford Wilson. And in 85, you did a highly praised revival of Lemon Sky. Interestingly, not at Circle Rep, but at Second Stage Theater at the time. Carol Rothman at Second Stage was, was is a great friend. And she, I was in their first production in, oh God, when was it? It wasn't even where Second Stage is now. It was at the top of, I want to say, the Park Royal Hotel I mean, literally, 17th floor. That's how you had to get to the theater. They had this space. It was their first production. They didn't have offices. They had nothing. It was just Carol starting a theater. We're calling it the Second Stage Theater. The play was called The Short-Changed Review. Um, an actor dropped out. She called me on a Friday, said, I need you there Monday. And I wasn't working. And I said, oh, okay. So I did it. And... Um, so she's been a great friend. And when it came back later, we want to do Lemon Sky at their space, which was... Uh, well, it was a, the McGinn-Cazale Theater, yes. which was above the now also defunct Promenade. Right. Yeah. 110 seats, and it was Lanford's play, and I just love doing Lanford stuff. So, I, I, And I knew I was getting ready to move back to Michigan uh, at that point with Kathleen and, and my two-year-old son at the time. I'd been in New York about 10 years at that point. The movies were happening. So let me do this play. And then I'll move back. And uh, and so I did. I did. And it was um, – it helped to know Lanford because it was so uh, autobiographical. He he tells the story of how he wrote it in something like 36 hours, just spewed it out, and then f fell weeping onto his bed when he was done. And so I – it wasn't that I was doing an impression of Lanford, but I was – there was definitely some, you know, the rhythms of Lanford. I knew very well from having been with him for years, and it was uh, a wonderful kind of role to kind of, you know, live in. Then your most recent Broadway appearance was uh, 1993, I guess it was, in Redwood Curtain, another Lanford Wilson show. Yeah, they called, wanted to take it to, we were going to do it at the Old Globe in San Diego, and I really wanted to kind of, not pay back, but... Um, so many people leave and go do movies and, you know, when a Marshall Mason or a Lanford who were so instrumental uh, in in just me being an actor at all 
when they call, you go, well, no, I'm doing movies now. Or, and I said, no, 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 I'm going to do this. So I went and did that part in San Diego, and uh, and then we brought it into New York. And, uh, you know, we, we, we tried. Deb Monk was great. Loved working with Deb. And, um, you know, really went hard for the homeless. I played a homeless Vietnam vet who was kind of lost in the woods in Northern California. And, you know... Was probably, I probably went way too far with that. It really was like I'd walked in off the street. Hmm. Your experience at Circle Rep was coming up in a playwright's theater. So it's all the more, not surprising, but remarkable that you have now managed to create your own theater. And to that theater, you are, first and foremost, a playwright. Can you tell us about the formation of the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan? Well, um, yes. I, I moved back to Michigan where I grew up, where Kathleen, my wife, grew up, to the same town. You can go home again. It's just different. That's what we did. We just we were going to have kids, more kids. Uh, we got three now. We wanted to raise them in a place that we understood. We didn't understand New York, how to do the kid thing. And I certainly didn't have a clue <clears throat> as to how to raise my kid in Hollywood. So was she I, also from Michigan? Yeah, same yeah. town. Okay. So I we just made the crazy decision that we're going to move back to Michigan and I'm going to fly on airplanes to jobs. The movies were calling. That's what I'm going to do. 1986. So we were there about three years, and it was working. The agents were very happy because I would get on a plane and go wherever. wasn't affecting the career. Um, I wasn't glamorous. I wasn't, you know... Uh, living on Mulholland Drive or, you know, catting around in New York or anything, but whatever. So, but I got bored. I kept playing. I played a lot of golf with people I didn't really care about. Um, and I just said, creatively, I'm going to sleep between jobs. And sometimes it's five months between movie gigs. And I just, the idea of trying to recreate what Circle was, the best of what Circle was, occurred to me. There was a, a wooden warehouse in this little 5,000-person Norman Rockwell town, Chelsea. And I got a crazy idea that we could create a Circle rep that does new work about the Midwest, about this corner of the country. All the theaters around us were doing published plays or whatever New York had done last year or whatever, you know. But I said, where are the new plays? Where are the playwrights from Michigan? Where are the Midwest? Where where are they? Hold a mirror up to the people sitting in the audience. That's what you have to do. No one was doing that. So I bought the building and, and um, created this place where I gathered as many talented people uh, as I could find. And there is talent in all places all over this country, not just the coasts. It's a smaller talent pool, but there's still talent there. So I was never dismissive of it. I just had to find it and then develop it. And so that's what I did, whether it's the actors, the designers, certainly the artistic director and uh, management and all that. I just took 10 years to really kind of get all those pieces in place. The last piece to come into place was the playwright. I needed playwrights, and that takes time. But what I'd learned watching Lanford work on scripts, watching Woody Allen cut and paste his his script on Purple Rose of Cairo, the film, watching Jim Brooks rework the script after five takes of Terms of Endearment. 
Gary Ross in Pleasantville later. I mean, I was just always interested in why they were rewriting. What were they changing and why? And so that's what I brought to it. And it's it's completely turned around economically, this town. Uh, we drag 40,000 people a year through the doors. 44 weeks a year we have performances. We do four shows a year. Minimum run is six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Biggest run is 14 weeks. Six shows a week, Wednesday night through Sundays. And they come. People come. And at a time when the American theater is supposed to be dying, when what New York thinks is great American work or how dismissive they can be sometimes of it, um, the American play is alive and well. It's in a lot of the regional theaters around the country. And I tell regional theaters this all the time. Stop being so pretentious. Stop thinking that the American theater is like uh, asparagus. It's good for you. You need to eat it, whether you like it or not. It's a three-hour production of this thing that's very important to us. Marshall said it best. It means nothing if you don't connect with the audience. If you aren't connecting with the audience, you have failed. That doesn't mean we all have to go do Christmas Carol. But what it does mean is you have to connect with the audience. And what the Purple Rose did, and critics don't always like to hear this, but um, the last time I looked, the Greeks were holding up two masks. And comedy is as much a part of life as tragedy. And we used comedy to get them in. And once you've got them coming, they'll come see everything you do. And we used comedy to do that. We wrote about them and made them laugh, and now they're coming. Well, your, 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 your concept was Midwestern voices, Midwestern actors, Midwestern directors, mm -hmm. Midwestern playwrights doing shows with Midwestern themes, not bringing stuff from Broadway or New York to the Midwest, but doing your own creation. Or even actors from New York. Mm -hmm. or, Jeff, why don't you bring in you know this star, that star? And this, That's not what we're doing. Make stars of the people who were there. Make the star of the guy who can do King Lear. But because of family reasons or because he went to New York and didn't get the breaks I did, he can still do it. Make him the star. Make him in Denver, in Detroit, in San Diego. Make him the star. And, and that's what we've done. Well, what was the reaction at the time that you started the Purple Rose Theater? What was the reaction of the community? Certainly the actors were happy. But what, what about the, the people who had They thought I was an idiot. I mean, uh, I had local – I mean, again, this is – you know, art – is someone who lives north of town. That's <laughs> that's where I was. And so I really, I had people coming up going, Jeff, you, you know this isn't going to work. You, you, you are, a, this is folly. <laughs> and you know what? I, I, you know, did I have a long-term kind of, you know, business plan? No, no, not at all. But, but what it did was it got, it started dragging, to be coarse about it, started dragging wallets and purses through that town that weren't coming to that town before. They were coming to see this comedy I wrote, <clears throat> or someone wrote, about deer hunting in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We couldn't print enough tickets. And here they come, and they all have wallets, and they all have purses, and the restaurants stayed open, and the shops stayed open, and the buildings that were empty, or the storefronts that were empty... All of a sudden, there are coffee shops and art galleries and a Western boot shop and a motorcycle shop, and they stay open till 8.05. <laughs> and 
I'm telling you, it, it, you know, the arts can contribute to a local economy. We're a perfect example. I'm looking at, uh, at the theater's website, Purple purplerosetheater.org. The current show that's running there is When the Lights Come On, and I was very interested to see that it's written by a former Division I football coach who also appears in the show. That's the type of people that yeah. that, that you're, you're, you're developing as, as writers, as artists. Yeah, and, and Brian Lesher uh, that you're speaking of is a, is a, is a wonderful actor. He did uh, Bus Stop for us last year, and he was in New York um, for a while as an actor, and but he just had this desire to write and so he used to be a, a d1 football player at michigan then he coached um and he just there's a play in there and he created a play we developed it we put it through the workshops we you know and you know it's it's not enough to just do a staged reading and then send the playwright off in development and think you're doing new work you aren't that's a cop-out you have to do the staged reading you have to workshop it and then you have to produce it because even by producing brian's play which i like a lot his next play is going to be his fifth play, not his second, but his fifth, simply because we produced it. You learn so much as a playwright when you've got a gun to your head in previews and the critics are coming and the last scene doesn't work. That's when you learn how to be a playwright. And when theaters do that, they will create playwrights. And the the if you want to find the American play, it's in the American playwrights, but you've got to commit to them. But as you talk about this, it's fascinating because you yourself are probably the most frequently produced playwright so far in the history of Purple Rose. You wrote a play for the very first season, yet you have yet to say that in your career you found yourself being drawn to express yourself through writing. You talked about you'd watched other people do it and you wanted the theater to exist. So what does the playwriting give you? We know what it's giving this theater. I, there are there are plays. Uh, there are sometimes when I'll write plays, um, because I'd never. I mean, th- I'll never be able to play this part. But I want to write the this play about two sisters, Norma and Wanda, because I got two actors. This is again circle rep, tailoring two comedic roles for two great comedic actresses that we have at the Purple Rose. I'm doing what Lanford did for me back in the seventies. And I love that. I love doing that. <clears throat> there are other plays I've written that came from deep within. A play called Guest Artist that, um, as I, I say, it took me 30 years to write. I mean, physically, two years, but 30 years. Because it's basically, a lot of it has to do with that, a lot of the things that Lanford taught me. And... Um, the, everything I, I I believe about art and theater is in that play, and so yeah, there are things that playwriting can do that movies can't, that acting in a play in New York can't. You can express yourself or deal with something across the way. Is a play I wrote that uh, deals about death, the end of you know the last ten minutes of a woman's life. And, and I, you know, you get to go places as a playwright that you don't get to go to as an actor and certainly as a film actor. Now, when you're creating work for The Purple Rose, whether it's yourself or another playwright, are you thinking of only playing at The Purple Rose or are you thinking beyond that, that there might be a life for the show in some other venue? Mostly, uh, uh, you know, 90 percent uh, uh, and certainly the initial impulse is Purple Rose and that's it. That's what we're doing. Um, we, I know that when I write a play like guest artist, I don't, I write it in a way that I know it's three characters. 
It's about the theater. It's about the new American play. It's about art, the art of theater. I know that, yes, when I get this, if I'm done with this, if I do it right, this will probably be produced all over the country, whether it's done in New York or not. doesn't matter. So, yeah, there's an awareness. When I write a play like this prequel called uh, To Escanaba in the Moonlight, which is the play about deer hunting in the Upper Peninsula, which we just couldn't print enough tickets. In every production we did, we couldn't. We sold it out, sold it out did a 16-month run at the Gem Theater in Detroit, 500-seat commercial house, 16 months, seven shows a week, grossed $4.2 million, Escanaba in the Moonlight, five guys in a deer camp. And there's a love story in there and all of that. So when I write Escanaba in Love, the prequel to that, which takes place 40 years earlier in the same camp with the same ancestry and family tree... I know that we're going to be printing tickets and, and you know, printing money. And so, uh, yeah, but that that only happened because I wrote the first one. There's something very entrepreneurial in oh, yeah. you're talking about this theater. And it bears mentioning that in addition to all of the, what you've already mentioned, that you've produced a couple of films of the plays that came out of the theater under Purple Rose Films. Mm-hmm. And now you go out and perform your own songs in concert and have recorded them, but for the benefit of the Purple Rose Theater. And we should say, for people who are in New York, you'll be at Birdland on May 14th performing. But again, it's interesting to me that it comes out of what you want to do for the theater. It doesn't seem to be coming out of, now I want to be Jeff Daniels' funny and heartfelt folk singer. Yeah, which, you know, yeah, I'm in one of the songs I usually do in the show is If William Shatner Can, I Can Too. So there is kind of a disclaimer right off the bat. I, 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 I tell you what, it all gets, it's a lot. And, you know, the, you know there's so much of me that, that I get ill sometimes. But it goes back to what Marshall said. You know what you should do with your life, don't you? And he was talking about acting, but there was more there. You know, I'm living a very creative life and I'm lucky and I'm fortunate and I love it and sometimes it expresses itself as an actor in Blackbird or a play I've written or been playing the guitar and writing songs, again the writer for 25 years and no interest in going out and and being William Shatner or you know Billy Bob or Russell or what Kevin Bacon is doing, God bless him, go for it terrific, wonderful, great but if I can parlay that's the celebrity, which I can't get rid of, it's the elephant in the room, but I can play the guitar, I can entertain an audience in a way that isn't, you know, listen to me be serious for 90 minutes. Again, here comes comedy. I have a song called The Dirty Harry Blues, which is, I'm the only one who, well, there's a few people. I did a movie with Clint Eastwood where Clint shot and killed me. So I write a song about the night that Clint Eastwood killed me, which is like this loving tribute to being killed by by Clint. There's a song about road rage called Have a Good Life Then Die. And then you mix in the other songs that are that are serious. Lanford wrote a song in the 70s called Road Signs. And we're literally doing 5th of July off Broadway and we were, you know, playing guitars. We didn't really know how to play at that point. And John Hogan and I, John John can play. But Lanford comes in, he goes, you know, I've never written a song, but I took a bus trip from New York to Missouri. 
I don't know, here's some lyrics, I don't know. And it's this two pages of this imagery that only Lanford could do. And so I immediately grabbed it. He gave Hogan another song, which John did something with. And I wrote Road Signs. And I'll be doing that at Blackbird. I did it. Uh, Lanford's now teaching at the University of Houston. He's teaching playwriting, does it every uh, second semester down there. And I went down and played a, played a venue, a club down there, and called him up. And he came over, and I played Road Signs for him 30 years later. Hmm. And so, I, I, you know, I, it's, I enjoy it. And the sale of the CDs, uh, I have a couple of CDs, mostly live performances, jeffdaniels.com. All the proceeds from the CDs go to the theater, which, you know, fundraising is, you know, what we do as a nonprofit. So that, and that makes it okay for me to kind of walk out there and, you know, join the ranks of actors who suddenly think they can sing and write songs. Well, we know that you're not William Shatner, but you are an accomplished actor and a playwright and founder of the Purple Rose Theater and a folk singer and a songwriter and all that. With all those accomplishments, what do you still want to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Do you have any any burning dreams that you want to accomplish? Uh, no. I, the, the burning <laughs> dream would probably be to simplify and to start <laughs> to eliminate some of these. Uh-huh. You know, you don't have to do everything today, Jeff. So... Uh, I, I, I think the honest answer is to try to sust- you know I've turned fifty I'm fifty two now and I'm I'm really focused on just doing things I want to do. So often when you're in your thirties and forties and you have a film career, you know you've got to keep fanning that flame and image and and I never cared about image. I just Circle taught me that. He goes why why are you why would you even consider doing this character the same way you did the other character in the last play you did for us? They're different people. So let's start over. And that's always been, whether that defines a character actor or you create these people that are different from the other, as different as you can make them, um, that's kind of what, what, I've, what I've done. So if I can kind of just do things I want to do and make a living at it and sustain a career regardless of where it might be, for another decade or get into my 60s and, and still be doing it, I will be thrilled. Well, currently you're doing at the Manhattan Theater Club through mid-June, I guess it is, the show Blackbird uh, here in New York and on May 14th, uh, a concert at Birdland, your own material. Jeff Daniels, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.